Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist, composer, and educator Cyrus Chestnut. His musical roots began with piano playing at the Mount Calvary Star Baptist Church at the age of five in his hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. From there, he would move on to Boston to the Berklee College of Music and would go on to dedicate his life to jazz. Honing his craft as a sideman with some of the legendary and leading musicians in the craft like Michael Carvin, Donald Harrison, Terrence Blanchard, Wenton Marsalis, Freddie Hubbard, Benny Golson, Betty Carter, and the great Dizzy Gillespie. He just released his newest 2018 CD called Kaleidoscope. He's full of wisdom. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Cyrus, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. So let's go ahead and hop into your latest album, Kaleidoscope. I've really had a great time listening to this album, and I want to know from you, how do you feel about this project and what went into it for you? Uh, Kaleidoscope is is a very significant uh, record in um, my journey. It really encompasses everything that I've experienced to this day. I teach at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and in in addition to uh, teaching and sharing um, information, I'm able to do research. So I remember from being very young, I always liked uh, the Impressionist composers, uh, Debussy, uh, Poulenc, Ravel. You know, I understand now why I like them, because there's some common ground in the way how they write harmonically. And also, for me, the way how they write is very organic to me. Sometimes the phrases are even and sometimes the phrases are uneven, are very um, much like the way how we communicate. I also like the fact of how the composers, specifically Satie, writes a phrase and allows you the time to really hear and process the phrase before introducing the next phrase. All that being said, I wanted to um, do interpretations of some of this great music. I know that there have been, um, I've done a record of uh, interpretations of classical pieces, but they were more like just uh, taking some of the music that went into the mainstream. And I didn't really want to do another album like that. Really dug in very hard, done, did everything I could to learn everything about not only the composer, but really research the music and connect to it. And once that happened, then um, um, the intent was um, just to offer an interpretation, not fixing the original, not fixing the original. The original does not need to be fixed at all. But once again, um, given the jazz idiom and um, I believe the freedom, I believe it, it allows one to be able to express oneself uh, it chose the pieces that I did. Some I found out were... Um, were somewhat popular and then some not so popular. And then going on, um, the, the people will always ask, they always get this look or this reaction when I talk about the group Deep Purple. And one might wonder why in the world would I uh, do an interpretation of Smoke on the Water? Well, it goes back to high school. Uh, when I, um, was, I took a guitar class and around all the guitars, um, they were playing power chords, and they were playing, like, Smoke on the Water and all. The very first gig I ever played was playing Smoke on the Water. So um, if I'm going to play, uh, if what I'm going to express comes out of what you know, I've been exposed to, then why not? Why not 
take a stab at Deep Purple. I think um, uh, I'm, I don't like to be, I don't care to be typecast as just a jazz trio pianist playing specific repertoire in the trio way. Always like trying to, go, attempting to go outside of the box and just, um, you know, figure out what else I can do, what else I can do. Because I don't necessarily care about sounding just like everyone else. Right on. Well, and speaking of outside the box, you grew up in Baltimore, started playing very early on in your life. Talk to me about your beginnings in music and how you evolved to a point of getting, going to Berkeley and getting into your career. Well, um, my dad would be the one I would have to say who really introduced me to music. And growing up, there was music in the household, you know, all, all around. My father would play the piano and my mother would sing. Uh, my mother sang in the church choir, even to this day, she still sings in the church choir. And um, my father, he doesn't play as much now, but yet still he, he plays. So, so as, I, as I've been told, what happened is, was somewhere around the age of two or three, I climbed up on the piano and started trying to do what my father did. Now, mind you, my father wasn't playing Duke Ellington at the much. <laughs> but, you know, he was just playing, you know, a lot of the, the, work, the, the repertoire out of the church, you know, the gospel, the gospel repertoire. I just started trying just to do what he did and just around. So I remember he bought um, this P, this P, these two piano books. The first book was called, the Layla, there was two books, the Layla Fletcher Piano Course. It was a green book and it was an orange book. And the first piece, first piece I learned to play was called CDE. And then the second piece I learned was called CDA. So I was getting exposed to the notes on on the grand staff, the treble clef, and the bass clef. Let's say at the, at the age of five, uh, my dad took me to see Ada Jenkins, and that's when I uh, started getting official uh, piano instruction. At the age of seven, uh, I then had to... I started to study with Linda Lessie, who was affiliated with the Peabody Preparatory Institute. And, and she suggested uh, that I continue study at the, at the Peabody. So at the age of nine, I was an official preparatory student going through the preparatory program, uh, studying theory, um, studying um, musicianship. Uh, that was a different type of, um, of, of, of music, music theory analysis and composition. Uh, the musicianship course was very uh, instrumental in that it really helped develop the creative side of me. We would study in class like Gregorian chants and various pieces in the Baroque, and as we analyzed them, our task was to basically create something based on what we heard. So, from you know, once again, I've always, in, in addition to playing Beethoven, Brahms, and Bach, I've always in the position of having to um, compose. So, what better segue to jazz idiom, I would say. Nine was a very significant time in my life because it was at nine years old I went to a, a five and dime store, F&W Woolworths. Uh, that was, uh, today's, uh, equivalent of, uh, today the equivalent would be the dollar store. <laughs> I guess inflation, huh? <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> In the dollar ninety-nine, then they had albums. And I came across this record 
with this um, with this guy sitting at the piano, and the cover just really captured me. There was something about it I couldn't I didn't know what it was, but it just captured me. And I didn't really know who the person was at the time. I had a hard time pronouncing the name. It was Columbus Monk. And so, so I asked my mom to help me buy the record. I bought the record. And at the age of nine, I started listening to Ruby, my dear, Cup of Skill with Nelly, Straight No Chaser, and all of the Monk repertoire. And I remember just loving it so much that I started, and I also started, um, at that time, all of the popular stations weren't necessarily FM, they were AM. And so that I was going, I would start searching for more of this music. I like what I was hearing Monk play. This, I was searching for jazz. And I would not only search the AM city stations, I would also search the FM stations. So, you know, I found a, I found a station that was on WBJC, and I remember Robert Ford. Robert Ford used to have that, um, have that, uh, have that show. And I would always listen to the music, and I just kept listening. I kept listening. Um, I guess it was destiny because, um, you know, studying, um, studying the classical repertoire, I didn't, I really didn't, wasn't putting the opportunity, I wasn't given the opportunity to like, uh, go in and really listen to repertoire, but, you know, once again, I wasn't given direction there, but when it came to jazz, it was just right there in front of me, so, uh, in time, um, uh, I would, I would, I would sight read, I would sight read Haydn, and, uh, I would sight read Haydn and Beethoven, but I'd really be studying Bert Powell and Monk. <laughs> <laughs> so, so needless to say, when I graduated from high school, I could have easily went into the to conservatory, the, the Peabody Conservatory, but um, by that time, uh, there was a place in Boston called Berkeley, Berkeley College of Music, and seemed to have everything there that I wanted to study. So there I went, and the rest of it is pretty much, you know, the rest of it, I guess you call it history, you uh, I got a um, degree in jazz comp- composition and arranging, but as soon as I graduated from school, I I knew specifically that you know the journey in jazz was for me, and so I needed to get to New York. And uh, I didn't get to New York right away. Um, I ended out you know, working with uh, John Hendricks, and I worked with Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison, but I officially got to between 86 and say 91 I was doing a lot of work with different people and I did um and I guess around around 87 88 I got to New York but it was 1991 when I got the call from Betty Carter that really started everything and really put put things in motion and so you know once once again you know working with Betty Carter and then um you know after my after the after the graduate school, for me that was graduate school. We had an opportunity, just like the people who went to Art Blakey School, to really uh, hone their craft. I had the chance to really hone their craft and really experience getting out and playing music. She always told me, she says, "When you finish with me, you're not going to play with anybody else. You're going to start your own thing." And I guess she knew because that's what happened. So what I want to ask you is this. I want to get right back into it and ask you, you know, once you started your career off, you really hit the ground running and started playing with a lot of big people as your career expanded. You have Freddie Hubbard, Benny Golson, Curtis Fuller. 
Regina Carter, Jimmy Heath. There were so many people. What did you learn from the masters that really helped you develop and grow as a musician to come into your own voice? You know, every every situation, you know, you you, you learn something from. But I think the person, honestly, that I learned the most with, and as far as coming to my own voice, would be Betty Carter. And the reason why I would say it is that he always, he was always uh, big on individuality. I have to tell you a story um, regarding that. It was one thing that was very pivotal because I mean, it was a certain period of time I, I was enjoying listening to Ama Jamal. And, you know, uh, and even to this day, anytime he's anywhere in there, I try to make sure I'm around. But uh, he has this type of thing where he um, just uh, simply is very unpredictable. And Betty is also unpredictable. Anyway... It was one day I was in um, I was with her in Emery Emeryville, California, at Kimball's East, and the trio started to play, and I decided I wanted to play the Miles Davis version of "If I Were a Bell," and I played it right down to the letter, and I thought I was doing something very significant, you know, was, you know, basically playing this version, and when she came out, she gave me this look. And the look was so intense that if looks could kill, I wouldn't be talking with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so after after he finished the set, he he asked me to come back to the dressing room, and I can't really tell you exactly what she said, um, but in a nutshell, he basically said this: "I don't have you here to play something I already I did already know." He said, I, I know it better than you because, he said, I was there. And so he, and he said, with all due respect, I know you have to, you, you're trying to learn all of this stuff, but you, you can't just, if you're going to play it, find a different way how to play it. You know, just don't regurgitate the same thing. And so, therefore, I'd, um, from that conversation, I was forever changed. And, and, and now, even to this day, if I find myself, not, you know, it's, I find this mechanism go off if I'm playing and if I'm feeling like I'm playing the same thing over and over again, I feel, you know, there's the voice of Betty, you know, yelling at me. It's like, no, come on, you got to push this up. And so, I mean, that's just, that's just it. I've, um, he always, he says, I have you here to think. He says, I have you here to think. I don't have you here just to play something I heard before. So uh, something like that is easy to say that, you know, to really play jazz is, is a definitely a thinking person thing, you know? You just don't play the same thing over and over, you know? E even to this day, it's just trying to find something, find something different, not just play the same thing. I mean, you know, it's so easy out here to be typecast as, oh, you're the soulful guy, and I appreciate that, you know? I appreciate the consistency, but, you know, um, we grow, you know. We grow. We, a baby doesn't doesn't stay, you know, six months old. You know, it grew up. You know, after a while, if it's a, if it's a guy, you know, he grow he grows up taller, and I mean, things happen. You don't stay the same. So we evolve. So I'm just just saying that, you know, as I evolve, the music is going to most for sure. The music is going to evolve. If one's going to take the journey with me, let's take the journey. Let's see what happens.
without a doubt. Speaking of journey, you have the chance to be in Robert Altman's Kansas City, and you were a Count Basie-inspired candidate. What did you learn uh, about Kansas City during that process, and what did you learn about growing as a musician during that experience? Well, you know, I, after, after that experience, I have incredible respect for, cinema, for cinematography because that's no joke. <laughs> Some of the things <laughs> that they do, it's like, it's just amazing, you know? The, the music was alive during that time, and, I mean, it was a part of everyday life, I guess you could really call. At that, at, 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 at that time, jazz was kind of like, the, you know, was the heartbeat, I would say. Also, like someone like I also learned a lot about the creative process too. Just how meticulous Mr. Altman was, just making sure that everything was right, never being, you know, never just accepting just for just whatever, you know. I had the best seat in the house, and the reason why I had the best seat in the house is because um, all week while we was recording, I was sitting next to Ron Carter. Wow. And <laughs> I don't care anybody that I had the best seat in the house, you know. I have a great respect for, for cinematography after that experience, you know. The one thing, too, about your career, and we've, we've kind of talked about this, about the legends and the luminaries you've been around. You've been all over the world. You've been on, you know, many recordings. And my question is this. How has all of this helped you as a professor and what you give to the, the next generation of jazz cats? In the university, um, a lot of the universities, they require one to have a master's degree. And I understand, you know, I think um, what sets me apart is I'm becoming one of those people. My, my, my master's degree has been, you know, hanging out with people like Betty Carter, hanging out with um, Elvin Jones. Uh, last, last night I'm working at the Blue Note. And McCoy China comes to the show. And, you know, we sit down and talk, and I, I just reminisce about the time I just sat, sat down with McCoy China, you know. <laughs> um, I've actually did do, I've, I actually have done, done uh, I, I, I appeared in Chicago on a double bill with McCoy, you know. And so, I mean, the wealth of experience I have as far as on-the-go on, on training, you know, Honestly, you can need to help any type of classroom experience, you know. I mean, I I can go and um and and go through the go through go through the process of getting the master's and the doctorate degree, but some of this experience that I have have you know being out here on the street and being able to work with different people, you know, through all of the years, you know, it, it's funny. It's now as I you know hear all the cats telling stories that they were telling stories to me. Now I'm telling the stories to the to the next generation, you know. I just once again, I have experience that someone who just goes to um goes goes to the university and simply um graduates and then goes back and gets a masters. They will never have what I have. And I think like even in this time we lost our our, our brother and, and comrade Roy Hargrove, but once again, you know all of the people that she has been around and all, and you know, I've had to, I've actually had the chance to walk. I've, I've walked with him, actually worked and recorded in his band. So to be able to pass that experience on, you know, you can you can learn in, in university. You can learn about a sharp nine chord, 
and you can learn about drop two and drop three voices and everything until you get a practical meaning of the flag the third and the flag the seventh. Oh, if you going if you don't, you know, if you don't have people in the in your corner to share that with you, you'll sound like a great jazz textbook. But once again, you need to have people out here learning how to basically tell their stories. You know, your career, as you've talked about with so many folks who played with so many miles that you've traveled and albums and experiences. Are you happy with where you're at in your career? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I, and I and I realize that there's more there's more to, there's more to do, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm looking forward to it. I don't have any I don't have any regrets, but I just do look forward to moving forward. I got got to keep it moving. Um, Jimmy Heath is 92 years old, and he just finished just yet another big band recording. You know, and so he's still out here writing. And, and they said, did he do old material? No, he did new material. So you know. You're out here when you can't, when you're done, when I'm finished and when I can't do anymore, then I'm taking the journey over across the water to see Monk for real. To shake Bud, to shake Bud Powell's hand, check out, check out Fats, you know, Fats Waller and all the cats. But yeah. until that day, I'm not trying to hurry it up, but until that day, I've got work here to do. And so, you know, I have to do everything I can to be the best musician I can be. I'm doing everything I can to send people away uh, feeling better than when they arrive. You know, that's that's my that's my job, you know. That's what I'm put on this earth to do. To put notes out in the atmosphere to give people, to, to inspire people, inspire people for better. Someone's feeling, feeling, feeling down, you know, let the music be the drug to lift them up, you know. Rather than some type, of, some type of chemical thing, you know what I mean? Without a doubt. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, being a part of Kansas City, I remember when that was filmed here, and I've been down off 18 and buying quite a bit, and I've always had this notion, if I could get that jazz DeLorean to pull up, Doc opens the hatch and says, get in, punch the digits, and go where you want to go. My question to you is this. If you could go anywhere in time, any place, who would you want to see live? Oh my gosh! <laughs> if I, you know, to be honest with you, I would like to go back to the days of the Baroque. I would like to see those cats. And then I want. Then I will flip forward. I will flip forward, and then I would like to be in the period. I would like. I would, I would like to check out. Uh, check out the musicians and those who were and those like. Who composed the Negro spirituals? I like to talk to them. I like, you know, and, and and find and find out some things. And then I will keep going. I will keep going. I would love to hang out with birds. I would love just to be a fly on the wall, and just see see birds and go go see and I'd see the beatbox cats. You know, I would love to see Bud. You know, the earlier days of Bud funk. But uh, I, yeah, I think that's that's what that's what I do. But if you ask me honestly, if I could really go back in time, I would go back in time, and I would like to hear what you hear what the cats in the Baroque did, because you know, when you think about it, you have to think it base, and then historically, you know, just just to see how these cats compose these things. I mean, you know, some of it might, some of it, you know, that I know it was written down, but I know that improvisation just didn't start in the jazz age. 
it's it, it, it been it, it's been around for a long time, and I would love just to hear just to go back and see how people put things together. You know, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I like that answer quite a bit. Let me ask you this: You've dedicated your life to it. You clearly love it. So my question to you is this: Why do you love jazz? I love jazz because it gives me the freedom to be me. It allows me to express who I am, who I, who I strive to be. Gives me the opportunity to be able to share what I feel and share what I hear. I have deep respect for the repertoire, but I don't like to be bound by it. Uh, you know, I, I, if you're going to put me in the box, I want to be in the box with one window with, with, with at least with, 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 with the top part open so I can always see out. And so when I get tired of it, I can go ahead and jump to the next, jump out the box and keep moving forward. I like jazz because it allows me to move forward. It allows me to move forward. Beautiful. So this is my final question for you, and it all comes to this. And I want to know that everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, that you know who you are. Tell me, who do you think you are? Well, I'm working on that, man. <laughs> I'm working on that. <laughs> I'm working on it. Who am I? I'm a person who loves music. I'm a person who loves fishes. You know? But when you say, who has, I'm, I'd like to just think of myself of a servant for humankind, um, doing what I can to make the world a better place. Doing everything I can. Who am I? I'm a person who strives to change the world one rhythm, one melody, and one harmony at a time. Beautiful. And I believe you've done that. Absolutely. Cyrus, thank you for taking some time out from Neon Jazz. Continued success, and hopefully we'll see you swing back through Kansas City at some point. I look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Baltimore, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Cyrus for his time, his music, and his cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.